Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we have a very special guest and a personal friend of mine, Jason Costello. Um, Jason is an extremely competent data scientist, but he's also an extremely competent data engineer. Um, and he is one of the people who first introduced me to the world of uh, deploying data science into the real world. Um, so he's been a very useful mentor with a great fountain of knowledge that he's more than happy to share with people. And so um, I wanted to start covering an important issue, which is the deployment of data science models into the real world. Um, and particularly, I have this uh, thesis that a lot of data science, when people talk about it, are sort of the uh, genesis of the of the term data science in the role data science comes from the fact that we've had a proliferation of software that collects a massive amount of data and um, traditional statistical roles were not sufficient um, in their skill set to handle those and handle the business concerns and the application concerns around that software generated data. Um, and so um, it required a new skill set and that new skill set started to be called data science or data science for a data scientist. Um, although admittedly anyone can name a title anything these days. Um, and so there's that. But uh, Jason has a massive amount of knowledge on this issue about actually taking models and putting them into the real world, making them embed into um, software and machines and moving that along. So um, I think we are very lucky to have someone who's both skilled from a data analysis perspective and from a software engineering deployment perspective. Uh, that's a unique skill set. Jason has been called a unicorn by some very successful people. And today we have a unicorn prancing about on our podcast. So, uh, Jason, welcome. Thanks so much for coming on today. Um, Thanks for having me, Glenn. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot to unpack um, because basically I'd like us to do um, a gentle introduction to the sort of the challenges of putting data science in production, uh, data science versus software. Uh, there's quite a bit. Actually, that reminds me, we had a Q&A yesterday and someone was asking me about agile data science. And... I was a little bit uh, circumspect on whether or not agile is the right, you know, development paradigm for data science. But um, I also then wish you were there because you could have given a better answer than I did. But yeah, um, where should we start? First of all, maybe I think it would be helpful um, to establish your machine learning data science and like data analysis credentials because you do have a PhD uh, on effectively uh, anomaly detection. And like the best of us, you did it working on, I believe, engine engine anomalies. Is that right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I have a doctorate from the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. So I started off my work in a really academic environment. Um, we were, as you were saying, working on applying machine learning to um, condition monitoring for uh, rotating machinery in nuclear power plant contexts. So that's a lot of time series analysis, doing machinery prognostics and trying to predict when a failure or some maintenance event is going to happen before it happens using all sorts of machine learning techniques to try and look at using the time series as a data set and making predictions from there. Um, so that environment was very, <clears throat> I think a fairly typical kind of PhD environment for somebody studying that in the UK uh, around about 2009, 2010. That was when I started that work. Um, yeah, and it's just interesting because we, at the time we never even referred to the work we were doing as data science. That predates, I think, the boom in the area like you're describing the the move to to create data science as a discipline having folks in industry and working as part of software teams to try and bring techniques like machine learning towards a software system and, and you know other aspects of statistical practice as well bringing those towards software systems seems to fall under that bracket of data science but we didn't even refer to it as data science when i was part of a research team it was intelligent systems techniques or uh, applied machine learning or um, I mean, even just data analysis was was the term we used at the time. So that, that that was my background. And towards the end of that, I decided I wanted to move towards working in a more product-driven environment. So working for a software team to try and help um, build better products using the knowledge I had. And since then, it's been it's been <clears throat> I probably learned more since I left academia than than what I what I learned when I was there. I mean, it was a great experience. The four years I spent at Strathclyde were superb, but. Um, very much my career since then has been trying to take the idea of um, specifically machine learning, but I suppose other aspects within the data science toolkit and, and hopefully bring some value to a software product as well, but in the context of delivering software and, and putting things out towards a product to use in some, in some business case as well. 
Yeah. And um, just as a quick sort of interjection, I thought that was interesting that um, within your academic publications, for example, one of the, so, uh, you know, obviously you, you came from that sort of uh, engine anomaly detection, the me uh, mechanical type approach. I came directly uh, when we met, you know, directly from the patient monitoring side. And yet, yeah. for example, a lot of our um, citations and papers were on the same people because uh, you had been citing my supervisor That's right, and yeah. my academic grandfather um, in that regard, um, which is, again, one of those things where it's funny how a lot of these techniques revolve around a certain hub. So that connection was there originally. I think your supervisor was originally working in machinery condition monitoring directly, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. So so I, I do remember. Yeah, there was. The, the, you're right. There was definitely citation crossover yeah. amongst the, the kind of the, the publications we were we were looking at and and contributing to as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting though. I, I'm not sure. I mean, from a, a methodological perspective, you can you can see why there's a confluence between those two. You know, at the end of the day, it's it's time series you're looking at. I mean, very different physical processes, the human body versus a turbine generator, those things <laughs> probably couldn't be more different, but it does seem that the uh, there's an interesting uh, aspect to this as well, that fair enough, those domain areas are very different, but the, the toolkit that you use is very is very similar and the way you solve the problems is very similar, which again is something that we're seeing in data science. There's a set of kind of key skills that data scientists will have and those will apply almost domain independent to a lot of software problems. You know, if you've got experience working with time series, then there will be a lot of time series problems in software teams that you could potentially solve. So it's just it's interesting how there's that there's that overlap in academia as well as seeing that in the in the real world, so to speak, as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's good reason why there's such an overlap in, for example, like uh, like tur uh, turbine monitoring and patient monitoring. And um, the examples are one, and I think this is also relates to why we can be very hopeful about a term, a science over data analysis. So for the people who like the term data science as a scientific approach to data analysis um, and a scientific and inductive understanding of, you know, data and methodological combinations, which is another definition I like. I think it's just sort of uh, different from the other. I like two definitions and they're fairly orthogonal. So something like a principal components on data science. Um, yeah. <laughs> but they there are reasons to understand why these two things uh, overlap so much in the methods and because one, they are time series, they have a, like a high density of observation. Um, those observational time series or those op more, not observations or like data acquisition. Um, so they're very dense. Um, they have steady state processes. Um, the non-steady state processes they have are typically, um, well, un well understood, or at least essentially they, they follow certain, uh, like new, uh, they follow sort of certain like archetypal data anomalies and things like that. And so essentially you can have like steady state and you can have a well-quantified steady state and then deviations from that steady state follow certain archetypes. And then um, you can do analysis around there. So I, I think it's one of those things where, uh, and obviously there's also a high value in making sure that both those things keep on working, you know, airplane of engines course. in human bodies or um, mechanical engines in human bodies. So, yeah, um, I think that's one of the interesting things, but uh so you made, uh, so you were working at academia, you were, you know, successfully doing work in anomaly detection and data analysis. And as you entered industry, essentially the demands changed for what you, for what was required of you. Yeah, definitely. So I decided to, I decided I wanted to, I wanted to change what my focus was, mainly because the opportunities were becoming more and more available around about 2014 it will have been, 20, towards the end of 2013. And I'd been keeping tabs on basically what had been happening from like, a, I mean, even just from a recruitment perspective, um, opportunities were coming up for, for folks with our backgrounds, with, you know, doctoral level qualifications in the areas of, um, well, data science more broadly, but statistical uh, practice and, and time series analysis and all these things. And it just, it was just a very exciting time to then have a look at what, options were available to someone who wanted to try something a bit different and maybe go and work for a bigger software team or work for a startup, for example. And that actually is what I ended up doing. I, I found an opportunity to work for a startup um, uh, based in London called Music Metric. Um, and we, the, the product was basically like a, um, a music analytics dashboard that took mm -hmm. aggregates of social media and um, other kind of, uh, I suppose, social network-based metrics and presented those to folks who were interested in 
in tracking artists um, from a, you know, like a, um, a kind of commercial performance perspective. They also had a really unique data set and um, they used uh, some clever polling of the BitTorrent network to get a measurement of how much a individual file had been pirated based on mm-hmm. its usage on the BitTorrent network. So that was a really interesting data set to have a look at from the perspective of it gave insight into you know something in 2014 that was still very prevalent, maybe before the streaming services had such a, a grip on everybody's use nowadays. Personally funded by Lars Ulrich of Metallica, no doubt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's a long story yeah, going from way back in the Napster days. Mm-hmm. At the time, BitTorrent was the major... I mean, I'm actually not sure if in terms of peer-to-peer sharing, I presume there still is plenty that goes on. But certainly at the time, that was a huge topic in the in the music industry. Um, and we... Our, our, well, the, the engineers had built um, like an entire process behind the scenes that would, as a product, would poll this network and save the data um, for um, kind of insights to be delivered to folks who were interested in this. So... The clients we kind of had were like Google and uh, Spotify um, and A&R agents for, for, um, for individual kind of labels and, and artists and things like that. So it was a really interesting data set to work with. And the idea was it wasn't necessarily to find things. This, this is where the shift was from my experience within academia was it wasn't so much you're, you're not looking for research novelty or to write a paper or, or to try and take a, a problem set and think how you're going to uniquely contribute to that area, which is obviously... The central part of what we do in, in 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 academia in many cases it was just trying to find what are the kind of useful insights and what are the useful potential product developments you can make off the back of that and we i mean we, we certainly did some kind of researchy type work as well but that was that was the biggest change for me and the change in mindset was looking at the the available um resources and then trying to it's looking to deliver business value i think rather than looking at the the, the kind of research novelty aspect which i'd been so used to working in the in, in academia um, as part of my research department um, and that, that's that been quite an adjustment I have to say like I, I, I certainly speaking to folks who come from I mean it's a fairly typical uh, I suppose trajectory for people to, to to come on towards data science as you come from a background where you're doing you're working in a research team you're writing papers and you're contributing to journals and then to come into into industry it's, it can be a bit of a mindset shift to, to try and because you, you you start getting you find yourself drawn to like the shiny aspects of really interesting deep questions when there's potentially a lot of much lower hanging fruit that will deliver immediate business value they have to focus upon, um, and that was that that was the, that was a huge adjustment for me certainly in the first few years of me moving away from academia towards this more data science um, environment, and to be honest the first few years of of, of working we actually ended up becoming um, a part of Apple we were acquired as they looked to spin up uh, Apple Music. Um, and the analytics arm behind that, um, it was still very focused on, I guess, analytics. Really, it was it was still doing a lot of reporting and kind of making sense of the data. And then beyond that, I decided I was more interested in rather than doing things that are, it's maybe looking at things from a reporting perspective with data science. You know, looking at data sets and trying to make sense of them to communicate insights or you know, trying to communicate just the, the nature of the data to stakeholders who maybe aren't necessarily skilled in that area. Um, I decided I wanted to be more in taking the data and trying to build features as part of software systems. So I went on to be a part of the team at uh, Skyscanner, which is a big uh, travel search engine. And since then, I've worked for a few teams and the focus has, much been, has been much more on taking data and trying to build, trying to take the data and leverage that as a as an input to the software systems to provide some kind of product value from from uh, the data as an asset rather than doing the kind of reporting part of it. Yeah, um, and I guess maybe not to be constantly interjecting the weird little connections here, but you know, there's also the Skyscanner connection, uh, but between us, where effectively um, Skyscanner, uh, the the Alster Han connection. Um, where, oh, I've actually never thought of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a very uh, good point. Yeah, yeah. So to make that explicit. Um, May have us all, I'll let you uh, describe the Skyscanner aspect, but um, uh, effectively, uh, my doctoral work was meant to be sort of an addition or um, a furtherance of a previous Oxford doctoral student whose name was Alistair Hahn, who was very entrepreneurial, um, and effectively, he developed a an IID method um, for identifying uh, whether or not a patient was uh, deteriorating. And if you go and look at... Um, uh, the like uh, one of the first two uh, videos in this uh, on this channel, you'll actually see something from like the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and um, 
This was effectively a, a prospective study to identify um, deteriorating patients on a step down ward and using this IID method. And the task that was handed to me is like, okay, uh, Alistair um, and some previous people did this work. And now, Glenn, you bring this into sort of the time series, the Bayesian non-parametric approach, and see what else we can, what further advantage we can get from that. Um, and then the Alistair Hahn connection for you is... Well, Alistair, when I joined Skyscanner, he was the CTO of, mm -hmm. of the organization. I'm not sure how long he'd been there. It was certainly, we've been in an extended period. I believe he was... I think he joined Skyscanner as part of an acquisition as well. Yeah, he was he was acquired. Um, so yeah. I think I believe that he was CEO of a. Um, I'm forgetting the name, but I think it started with a Z or something. But, but uh, essentially, he had created his own uh, technology for uh, route mapping and finding ideal prices. And Skyscanner came and just nabbed that. Um, and I think he was working on both those. That at the same time, they're doing his doctorate. So. Um, Again, and again, these are he's also a uh, doctoral student of the aforementioned um, people um, who were also co-siding my academic grandfather and things like that. So, yeah, um, definitely a multitude of interconnectedness. But anyway, that's just a weird connection. But yeah, I actually, I, I hadn't really, because I remember reading... Uh, some of his air. I, I definitely remember. I was definitely aware there was a connection, but I, I maybe wasn't sure it was as strong as that. I like. I, I believe I knew he'd been either part of a similar group to the one that you were in, Oxford, yep. or or it was maybe adjacent to it. But I had no idea the connection was that strong. So that's quite funny. And yeah, more evidence that for folks who are maybe thinking about moving from an academic background towards being maybe more perhaps tech kind of company focused or moving towards industry. Uh, there's yeah there's there, there's a kind of strong tradition of folks doing this mm -hmm. <laughs> over the last ten years plus so yeah but um back back to what you're talking about so I thought I thought it was interesting and I can definitely confirm that um you know in academia you can do a large number of things and there is obviously a high um high reward for sort of the technical spectacle of things or if you can do something that's very shiny and interesting it's better. If it's more complex and shows how smart you are, that's a, a great way to do things. You know, they prefer the Bayesian optimization for personalized Gaussian process approaches, um, as opposed to, for example, a dashboard um, that would just let you monitor patients across a ward and things like that, um, especially when you get into the more engineering and machine learning side of things. But um, in industry, you know, you can get those, as you call them, low-hanging fruits. Um, and I think that that's a pretty common term where they're just saying like, okay, for a data scientist, given that we're paying you so much, um, why don't you like earn your salary? And like, what are the things that you can do? And uh, there's a bit where effectively like all of the data exploration phase for a data scientist is actually close to a deliverable product for a team. So effectively what you're doing just to explore the data before you build models could more or less be a useful product to the rest of your team. And the advantages of that that I can see are, um, one, you don't have to create these more formalized statistical inferences. You don't have to create some formalized predictive models. Um, and I think the mathematical, the formalization of those processes and all the extra work that has to go into formalizing them and making them reliable is a is the vast majority of the effort. Um, whereas a lot of these more visualizable um sort of like where if you can basically create um, views of data streaming in and do some anomaly detection, things like that, where, you know, you can still use statistics to flag important data, but just providing that view in is a very useful thing. But obviously that's not the only thing that's there. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe the next thing is say, well, what if you do want to do the fancy machine learning and start delivering that? Is that, is that the next step um, or do we miss something? I, th I think so. I mean, I think still there has to be a strong tie towards, I mean, we talk about maybe business value, but there being a problem to solve. So, I mean, certainly my experience in academia was there was, when you're looking to apply a set of techniques, be it a machine learning approach or or otherwise some other statistical technique, for example, um, solving the problem was was good. But I think like you're saying, the kind of technical spectacle was also part of the process as well. And admittedly, yes, you know, building like a machine learning model to use to solve a business problem or to, to improve a product, for example, those that process will be much more complicated and take a lot more technical work potentially than doing um, maybe more straightforward data explorations and stuff like that. 
But um, at the same time, I still think there has to be a very strong view of what it is we're trying to achieve at the end of the day. Um, I've certainly been guilty of this in the past when I've, you know, trying to earn my stripes as somebody who was maybe more product focused um, and trying to contribute to, to work as part of a team where, you know, you, you've got a problem and you, I've tried not to, as part of the team, we've tried not to solve it necessarily in the, the most, the minimum viable solution to the problem to begin with and iterating from there, it might be a shiny aspect of the problem space meant that we focused on a really technical detail first or we tried the more complicated approach to to address the problem before we tried maybe more simple things. And I think from experience, it's, it's definitely where I've, I personally had more success is when you've taken a much more incremental approach towards moving uh, something that's perhaps proof of concept towards um, a production system, for example. So admittedly, while these things can be really complicated, I think still having like a strong view of what the, even what the minimum, like I was saying, what the minimum viable solution would be to get that into into some delivery mode, be it a serving predictions if it's a machine learning model as part of a of a production platform, or even um, you know if it's a piece of technical analysis that's been done ad hoc previously, automating that process or making it more autom- automatable and and kind of reliable and robust, like these are all useful things to do, um, especially as people get more and more buy in into the kind of work you're doing as a data scientist and, and the contributions that you're making, because although sometimes those might not be <clears throat> the types of things that we will have done in academia, they're, you know, they're, they're undoubtedly providing like a monotonic improvement to the state of play in whatever business it is you're contributing to. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if that answers your question or not. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it does. And maybe it would help, uh, for example, uh, if we, should we just maybe use a quick toy example um, that is probably pretty close to things that both of us have done um, where we both have an academic version of it and sort of a more industrial production version of it. Um, so for example, say that you are uh, trying to monitor a number of entities where uh, like uh, say you have a number of, um, I'm not, I'm trying to figure out, decide how, how uh, explicit I'm gonna go on this, but essentially say you have uh, essentially a number of um, sensors, for example, and each of those sensor is of a unique value. So each of those sensor might be a customer. and that customer is generating a series of values. I'm not saying it's like a super continuous time series, but they have multiple values over time. And so effectively what you might, um, what you might be doing in the academic setting is saying, okay, when we try to detect these anomalous, uh, which customers are anomalous, what we first might do is say, okay, well, let's um, develop a, um, a customer specific distribution um, for each of those. So essentially we go from having a number of data points to now we have a number of distributions, one for each customer. Mm-hmm. And then that brings up the new technical question. Well, we're calculating the distribution, but how do we know our distribution is good? Because obviously mm-hmm. we're automating that uh, statistical inference process. And so we say, okay, well, how do we regularize or how do we uh, improve that so that it's more precise and a better descriptor such that we have this down the line view of detecting anomalies? Um and so that might bring in the factors like, well, uh, maybe we want to put in Bayesian priors and we can put in some priors on that. Um, and you can see where this is starting to go. It's like, yeah, well, yeah. and but then again, what about other features So um, that you might have for these? So, for example, um, in addition to the raw data itself, you might have extra features for this customer, for example, like their customer size, how many, how many, um, how many employees they have. So effectively, now we're doing two things. We have this. We're turning this into more of a, a regression type model or um, some broadly regressional type model. Um, and the moment it's nonlinear, it's like, well, which nonlinear model do you want to use? Do we want to use a hierarchical model or do we want to maybe use a Gaussian process so that we can just sort of uh, plop density where we need to? And you can start seeing that it's like, well, okay, say we're going to use this regressional model. What's you know the, the, the length scale of the effect on... Um, on the customer side. So how rapidly will these change And our customers with 10, do they change to the same amount? Or once you get super big, does, does that, does the rapidity of change change as well? So you can see that, and those are very interesting technical questions. Yeah. Like that, that, that's, that's yeah. the stuff that I love to do. But the fact is each of those steps adds and adds and adds. And yeah, you can look shiny and smart by doing those things. Um, but the question is for each of those, you need to create a formalized inference step and you need to, uh, basically uh, curate the data in certain ways and make sure that it's very well controlled. Whereas the other option 
On the other side is you create a dashboard and you really just plot that data and give each person a little box and you can just look at the distribution. And if you want, then you just plot it with respect to this other feature. So effectively, you're just visualizing the effect of the feature. You make a 3D plot and it pretty much shows everything you'd want. And that's that doesn't require any of the formalization process that you would for the fancy machine learning or data science work uh, that we all love and sort of really like to see because it's it feels good in our guts. Um, is, is, is that an example where effectively on one, uh, you can keep pushing that and add technical complexity, which is, it is real technical complexity. It's not like you're making up work, but it's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great example. I think the important thing to note as well, all the, 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 the deeper technical challenges that you talk about, all the different ways that we can slice a problem up that you're, you're given in your example there, those things potentially are really useful things to do as well. You know, like the fractal of, of, of stuff, while it is like a bit of an attractor, like in, in people who are maybe more technically inclined to, to go navigate that fractal or at least try to, uh, well, it's not to say that those things aren't useful because very many of them will be. I think it's just in, in the, the hierarchy of needs for a given business problem, um, there's going to be something like just the visualization that can be done that will then, it just immediately provides value that's not, it's not, there's no barrier to, to or it doesn't need to be unlocked uh, by product of this much more technically difficult set of steps that you'd have to take to, to look at the more intricate aspects of of, uh, of some of the techniques you were, you were referring to there. I think the, the important thing to remember is because sometimes people seem quite defeated by this. They think, well, you know, I, I really want to do all this really fun work. Like I really want to look at the the, the details of how we take a, a given method and we, we dig into the, the kind of weeds of it and look at the, the potential optimization techniques we can use or maybe we spend a lot of time in the kind of model selection world and we try a new methodology for, I don't know, like some kind of machine learning method. Um, those things can be really useful. I think it's just, it's, it's kind of like being pragmatic about how you how you ensure that the delivery of... Um, of the output from like a, a data science process. And I talk about that, I, when I say the data science process, I mean like the output from the data science team. You have to just being pragmatic that that has to be a, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the decision-making process behind which route you take as well. Um, but certainly, I mean, there's so many problems within um, all sorts of domains where that kind of technical complexity is not necessarily even like a shiny thing to go and look at and, and kind of satiate our curiosity. Sometimes those things are barriers to providing uh, a solution. So there will be plenty of scenarios where you'll be dealing with technically very difficult data problems that will require that level of rigor. I think though, it's just, it's just first of all, identifying those well um, as part of the process of your investigations is, is a challenge in the first place. Um, but also, you know, like a, like in the example you gave there, just doing some visualization and communicating the challenge of the problem and maybe giving some incremental benefit to the team more widely is definitely something that that um, I think is 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 a much more uh, kind of like repeatable process to take when you're when you're looking at these kinds of problems. And very often, what will happen is it may just be you know the exploration part is good enough for whatever people are trying to solve um, in the business more widely, but. At the same time, that's not the end of the story. You know, that might turn into something that's then, okay, we have some uh, data exploration process that a data scientist has run here. You know, how do we how do we look at this and make it more robust? And how, how do we automate this so it's not having to be done ad hoc each time? Or or what's the, what's the potential deeper questions that this analysis opens up as well? You know, is there other business-led um, kind of questions that we can start to ask based off of that um, uh you know, that approach we've taken that maybe it wasn't technology driven, but it was certainly problem driven. And it, I often find from my experiences, um, it opens up more questions as well, but you'll end up, there'll be more interesting questions underneath that first layer that then become available because you've had this two and kind of to and fro conversation between the data science team and maybe folks who aren't data science specialists, um, who you're maybe reporting back to kind of stakeholders in the, in the business more widely. And then it gets really interesting because there's an enablement and kind of like a conversation that happens where you have something that previously wasn't investigated because either the data science team wasn't there, maybe the expertise wasn't available to begin to, to visualize, even if something as simple as visualizing the data to answer at least the first step of a question. And then maybe if it's, if it's a product team you're working with, they then, off the back of that value that's been delivered to them, they go, oh, this is really cool and really neat. We can see X, Y, and Z. So what about questions A, B, and C off the back of the analysis that we've done? And it becomes like a kind of virtuous loop where 
some really interesting questions can get answered based off of that process working really well, which I think that kind of does get lost if you if you if you try and step back and 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 just try and well in fact not step back but shoot in for the the really technically uh, difficult solution to begin with. Yeah. Um. So also just just to double down on this point because I think I think this is important and um. So again, there are uh, necessary fundamental technical challenges when you're trying to do so, solve some of these hard problems. And so obviously neither of us are dismissing that. Um, however, I guess what we're, uh, one of the things we're saying is that um, prior to solving a lot of those um, really like dug in technical problems uh, when you're trying to really um, add value to these, uh, for example, predictive models, in the process of um, creating those, you are there's a large amount of, the reason they're difficult is there's a large amount of formal formalized logic in those. I'm um, like, yeah. there's a rigorous logic where, you know, just, um, you can't just tell a predictive algorithm to perform well. You need to tell it how to perform well. You need to give the data such that it will perform well, things like that. Um, and so effectively, and those are extremely formal. Um, you know, they, they create, they have first order problems. Those first order problems create second order problems and third order problems and things like that. And you have to go down the line and knock out each of those. So it's not just saying, oh, just create a model. What you're saying is you create a model and then maybe you need the model that supports the model and then you need the data cleaning process that supports the model that supports that model. And so effectively, um, there's this big root system underneath each little plant that you see. Um, And so um, no one's denying those. And the fact is we love doing those things. But at the same time, those are extremely uh, time-consuming, at least with current technology. And... um, in the process of doing that, you're going to be doing a lot of visual inspection and a lot of other quality work that you could also be immediately deploying to great advantage um, to the rest of your team and to your company. So, whereas one of these things essentially takes a long time, and it's only once it's come to fruition, you know, these complex data science projects, it's only once it comes to fruition that the value is uh, delivered. That yeah. some of these other things, like, for example, visualization, dashboarding, stuff like that, which, you know, how many billion dollar dashboarding companies are there out there? Like more than more than I have fingers on my hand. Um, and in fact, that goes to show the value of it. And um, um, I also, by the way, only have I'm I'm only a five fingered man. So um, Indigo Montoya, uh, yeah, don't, don't don't worry about that one. But yeah, um, um, the the value in that also, as you brought up, starts um, it starts, you know, percolating some other other questions beyond just the ones that the data scientist brings up a priori. And so that's, I think, one of the benefits of these things where once you bring up the dashboarding, um, and so your sort of things say, don't worry, the interesting data science problems will come. 100%, um, yeah. I think yeah. That one, what one point that's really important as well that sometimes gets forgotten um, is that, like this stuff, when you're looking at things from a real technical depth, if, if, if for example, we went for a really specific highly technical um like maybe even esoteric approach to solving a problem that took a lot of work to begin with let's say six weeks or or more worth of development work with a real research focus on on trying to to solve a problem like with our hypothesis as to how we would solve the problem Um, and maybe that maybe the problem is like a really high value business problem maybe this would solve the you know the product maybe it's delivering something at like one X and then this way of solving the problem, if we got it right, would make it 10 X and you know, like it would, it would change the landscape of how these problems are being solved. And um, one thing that doesn't really get spoke about is that stuff in data science, there's a real uncertainty as to whether anything's going to work before you get into the weeds. A yeah. lot of the time there's, there's a real, I say non-zero, there's a pretty high chance sometimes that no matter what research work we do to try and, I mean, no, limitations on the data, limitations on the methodologies that we're going to be able to employ within the confines of the resources that we have, even limitations on the skill set of the team that are working on it mean that some things aren't necessarily possible. And that might not even be uh, obvious until way into the process. I mean, it might be weeks and weeks and weeks before we've gathered enough information to then say, okay, this is too hard. We can't do this. Um, and that, so you going back to the point you made about agile software that you're talking about in the Q&A, that's a real challenge when you try and integrate data science into agile methodologies is because um, if you're looking at things like building sprints and working in Scrum, a lot of the, the real valuable aspects of, of, uh, 
I've been able to plan and coordinate software development using those kinds of tools is by providing at least benchmark estimates as to how you know process like you know task A, B, and C are going to take how long that will take a team of five engineers to work on. Now I'm not saying that the software engineers have got all this sorted. Like software estimation is notoriously difficult to do, but on that kind of like bed of sand, data science estimation is even even more difficult to do because of mm-hmm. the inherent uncertainty and the and the um you know the, the the processes that we go through to solve the problems you know like building an API can take longer than expected because of unforeseen product requirements but building like a machine learning model to sit inside that API can take even longer because it's not even we're not even sure we have the resources to build everything in the first place from a data perspective or expertise perspective whereas building an API is kind of you know people have done we've been doing this for a long time now we've got ways of doing that and um, that we understand how it's done so it makes it really that's another reason why we shouldn't necessarily be, we should be biased away from the more complicated um, kind of approaches up front because we don't even know necessarily if taking a really strong hypothesis about how we'll solve a problem with a really specific, detailed and technically challenging methodology will actually work in the first place. Yeah, no, that that is interesting. Um, and um, so I guess there's a few things that, there's a few ways that this can break down. And I think it, it bears reiteration that effectively you can do a lot of work on a data science project and it literally comes to nothing. And the problem with that is obviously the resources are wasted. Um, And um, at most you might be able to say, well, we now have identified that this comes to nothing, nothing, and that's a problem. And therefore we're going to add more, we're going to throw more uh, good money after the bad um, to build what would be needed to make this work. Um, And so some of the challenges are like, because I don't think people always appreciate this, where um, there might be a fundamental disconnect between the data you have and the information you need. Um, yes. And so, like, if you're trying to use that predictively, if there's a fundamental disconnect between what you have as your predictors, your X's, and what you're trying to predict, your Y, and that it's not just whether or not it exists, but whether it's strong enough to be worth your time and to be low variance enough and things like that, such that you can do something with it. So, um and I think that it's, um, you can't tell that deductively. It's an inductive pros- yeah. process. It's also prospective as well. It's highly prospective. And when you compare that to something like, well, you deliver a dashboard that's much quicker um, and is also going to generate new hypotheses. So the other thing that it does is this brings up, instead of basically trying to say, I'm going to be the one processor on hypothesis generation, you're essentially bringing this, you're parallelizing the capacity to generate hypotheses, um, which then means that effectively they can bring up things in one of the, um, are, are, are you satisfied with that? Because um, if, if so, then I'll move over to the next bit, the, sort of the good news, if you will, where you can yeah, see no, I, I think I think, I think that's, that's a good summary as to kind of like where the, the challenges are for, for dealing with like these kinds of projects, really. Mm-hmm. And also they can have immense mission creep. So the the, the risk of mission creep uh, is in all of these things. Um, yeah, so. I mean, 100% mission creep is, I think, especially in areas where there's a lot of, you know, I mean, <clears throat> everybody who works in industry will have had an experience of trying to, like the, the value of doing this kind of work doesn't need to be communicated to a lot of savvy, let's say, project or uh, product managers or product owners. But the limitations as to what can be done definitely needs to be explained. So you often get very excitable product owners who work in large software teams who would be like, well, let me, well, let's apply this really kind of like vogue technique to this particular problem. And then we'll, this, this will solve all the product problems that we have. And it's the understanding that needs to be kind of hammered home that this is it's really difficult to do a lot of the time. And kind of managing expectations on that front is often like a really important part of the, the kind of collaborative process between people who are in the data science and machine learning side and folks who are from larger parts of the business as well. Yeah. And so I guess, um, because obviously we like to have good news in here. Like the, the thing is like, you can actually get to the cool technical work that you want to do. This isn't saying, Oh, don't do cool technical work. I think we've been clear enough of that already. Someone would have to be like fairly, uh, dedicated to ignoring what we're saying to say that we don't want to do, do that cool technical work. The challenge is like, well, how can you get to that cool technical work? And essentially doing these more like incremental low tier projects to begin with, essentially what it can allow you to do is parallelize. So just consider a dashboard as opposed to a predictive model. It now you've parallelized the hypothesis generation um, 
process. So now instead of you being the only person who generates hypotheses or you and your manager, it's now a large number of people who are looking at that dashboard, the software engineers, maybe some product managers um, or project owners and things like that. And um, maybe even customers on some level. And so effectively you have now have a range of problems because it, the hypotheses are being generated in parallel. You now have a range of problems that you're allowed to, from which you can select. And I think that one of the places where um, natural a natural place to build off from, for example, visualization is then you try to deliver basic value at volume. So, and that immediately can become a very uh, data analysis heavy issue. So essentially people can say, oh yeah, this is a cool dashboard and I'm seeing these points that don't quite make sense. Which data points are these? How do I highlight them? Can you tell me which these are in advance? And so it's like, well, boom, now you've gone from something saying, well, don't, you don't just say, well, just hover your mouse on it. It's in Plotly. It'll tell you which data point it is. Cause obviously that that's uh, not quite it, but like bringing now when people say, oh, this is interesting. Can you bring this to my attention? Uh, prospectively, you've now created a new predictive problem. You've had it validated that people need that. So essentially people are saying this is of interest. And so then maybe the next increment is saying, okay, let me try a, a fairly simple anomaly detection method, et cetera, to start flagging this. Okay. Is, is, is that, is that uh, an okay path forward? What, what are your other options? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, in, in the case of if, if the product that we're delivering is a dashboard, like you've, you're kind of already hinting at the fact that if that's for internal stakeholders, there's the, I mean, that's great because it means that you're going to free up this constant ad hoc reporting uh, function that data science and data adjacent teams will often end up having to do. Um, because there's a lot of talk amongst teams and companies more broadly about being data enabled or data driven or um, using data and evidential um, kind of reasoning behind making decisions uh, from a business and product perspective. But when you when you give people the data just without necessarily <clears throat> the the context and the explanation around it, that that's great and that, that's a huge value add, I think, for for a lot of scenarios. But it becomes the next stage of the problem is how that the ongoing kind of support and kind of business as usual, uh, I suppose, parsing and understanding of the um, of the processes that are being now instrumented properly via dashboard, um, like how that is done by folks who maybe aren't necessarily the experts. Is really challenging. Um, so, in the example you gave, so someone will be like, "What are these? These don't align up with." So, for example, let's say it's a, a particular set of um, of data points on like a time series, and they'll say, "This doesn't align with what I would expect to see at this time," or there's some other explanation that we need to have given to um, to reason about this part of the data that's being visualized. And you might decide, "Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe we should look at some kind of anomaly detection process to." either flag these parts or to um, to remove them entirely. And that that's certainly one way of trying to approach that problem. But now you, you, what you're doing now is like looking at, you're turning like um, what originally was like, a, a, I suppose just an instrumentation and kind of dashboarding problem into now is becoming like a proper data product and how you build that anomaly detection process, which by the way, can often be like, not just in dashboarding, will often be like a hugely important part of like a product more more broadly, um, you know, anomaly detection systems become have become central parts of a lot of the products that I've been able to contribute to. That it's not necessarily in some kind of like time series output that it's flagging it. It will be some set of scenarios, for example, that we decide the product that we're developing either has to be aware of or has to avoid, or you know, these cases have to be flagged up from like an instrumentation perspective, not customer facing, but um, you know, operationally facing, like understanding. The dynamic scenarios that software can end up in using anomaly detection is is like a really, I wouldn't say it's a repeatable pattern because it's, it's so challenging and domain specific in certain areas, but it's certainly like a, a a repeated kind of value add from data scientists who'll be working as part of like um of software systems. But on the dashboarding front, you have to make sure that the anomaly detection scenario and the the anomaly detection product that you're building on top of the dashboards would be is going to solve the problem because um. You know, if an individual product manager, like a stakeholder in your team from the, the company more widely says, I don't understand these points. I mean, those may be anomalies from the, I suppose, looking at the the context that that data has been parsed in by a non-stakeholder, but to then spend the effort building a product on top of that to then deal with that individual whim of that one stakeholder, 
there has to be like a real understanding as to what it is we're, we're trying to achieve by doing that. And if it's a case of, yeah, this is just, you know, if there's, there's loads of examples of where, I see we have a dashboard monitoring some kind of process that's of business-like importance to stakeholders outside the data team, shall we say. And we say, yeah, there's a lot of noise in here that there's no value add to it and there's no scenarios that we're interested in in presenting this data and uh, like that would be of any business value. Yeah, let's build a normal detector and that will improve things. But often those those cases that might be of no interest or discardable for one stakeholder could be of interest to others. So it's again trying to get that. It's, I think the answer is it's kind of it depends on whether that's a useful thing, which is mm -hmm. never a useful answer, but but it covers things so so broadly a lot of the time. Yeah, but I mean, I think sure that there's a real there's an understanding as to what you're trying to deliver to add that uh, kind of extra kind of feature on top of just the communication of the data as well. Yeah, I mean, I think the key to that though is that you probably the best result is to have some type of like NLP model on top of that, such that you monitor all interactions with the uh, stakeholders, and then you have a predictive model that tells whether or not they'll appreciate your anomaly detection method. So, then sentiment analysis of your coworkers. Yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. Just yeah. um, and I think that's really where people need to be placing their time these days. Um, yeah, I think, it, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, if you're worth anything, otherwise, you know. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, yeah, so I, I think that I think that's helpful. So. This is, this is helpful in the sense that um, if we recognize that the vast majority of people in the data analysis field do appreciate, and I know we'll keep reiterating this, but I, I like to keep the train of thought, is that um, we want to do a lot of these fancy and interesting things. That's all, the data analysis is typically what we love. And so that means that like sort of on the first step, we tend to go off on this one branch that might say that we'll um, just turn everything into a research project. However, if you can scale it back, parallelize the hypotheses um, so that you're not the only person, then essentially you have a large number of things, that, different projects that, from which you can choose, and then you can do provide incremental value on those, and that those more frequently than not will lead to the same type of interesting problems, but now we're a bit better latched onto one that's probably more important, one that's already more tractable because you've already put in the data exploration yeah. phase and things like that. Um, so now, now let's say, okay, we, we, we essentially have these, um, we now have a predictive model that we want and it's time people have assessed the value of this. And now it's time to essentially try to start like fusing this into the software solutions, treating this like a software solution. And th this is the bit where you have extensive experience with this. Um, my experience is a bit more on the toy level, um, where effectively the farthest I've gotten with most of these things is essentially embedded analytics in the dashboard um, and deploying those to make sure that they're good enough. Um, but as far as saying things like, okay, um, rigorously, how do I test that these things work in all scenarios? How do I deal with the different software outputs, things like that? Um, beyond basic, you know, distribute, creating little distributions, testing input versus output type of things, in scenarios like that, um, a little bit of model tracking, um, like if, for example, just seeing if uh, in different segments over time, your model's having drift or there's feature drift or there's drift like that. Um, and of course I get to create cool dashboards like that and play around with the uh, the machine learning bits on that. But formally for someone who's actually good at it, unlike myself, what what is the process in that? Because I think that's sort of where you're trying to really spearhead. Definitely. I mean, uh, first of all, when you describe my experience as this is extensive, I mean, it's, it's definitely been my focus for the last good number of years now. But one of the most exciting parts of, of this aspect of the kind of data science development process and software like more generally is that this is all so new and there's there's so much still to be defined from like, a, certainly from a best practices perspective. Now, there's 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 a few best in class companies that, that certainly have processes that I've actually largely been kind of, <clears throat> say for a few notable examples, that they're kind of largely obfuscated from the the, the the discipline more broadly. So the ones that jump out are these kind of large, like um, kind of fang companies. Like yeah. so Google's the, the kind of canonical example for, for a, an organization that's able to productionize kind of machine learning at scale and doing that while delivering like kind of product value. And, and there's obviously other teams like Apple and Uber and, and Facebook who were doing similar things as well. And th th there'll be more domain specific examples, but to me, those are the teams that kind of have the most kind of operational experience behind doing this. But there's, the, there's not as much kind of broad 
agreement across the industry as to how even just the question as to how we move from that kind of proof of concept stage where we have a model or a feature or something that's been has been analyzed and experimented upon and developed in collaboration with stakeholders in the organization and there's a clear product need for it but even just the movement of that towards a production scenario is something that there's a lot of there's a flurry of activity at the minute and has been for the last i would say 18 months to two years from like a maybe like a, a kind of software practice perspective and I'm not really sure what the reason for that is. I think maybe the prevalence of tools from like a compute perspective and from a data availability perspective have they've certainly reached like a, there seems to have been some kind of like action potential we've got past over the last five years where things that were previously exceptionally difficult are now becoming, from, from, from like a data engineering perspective, are now becoming much more tractable and much more commoditized. So historically, even, so if you give a specific technological example, there's a tool that I've been using on and off for the previous, I mean, since 2014, so I don't know how many years that is, so it's seven years, uh, called Spark, which many data scientists who are working in teams will be familiar with. Mm-hmm. And when I began using that, it was a, you know, it's been an Apache uh, project for, 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 I think, since the outset, but um, it was very difficult to use to begin with. It's, it's something that, that took a lot of like, uh, sk- like development of kind of s- very specific skills and understanding to make the tool work, to, to do in-memory data shaping and analysis and, and some machine learning if you were interested in that aspect of it. Um, so back then it was it was a, there was a lot of kind of investment to make that work and then the operational uh, stuff behind the scenes to make it part of your software stack was was very you had to put a lot of investment and time into that as well with multiple kind of like software experts contributing to it not just the the actual data science output of that that becomes maybe a data pipeline thing but in the running of the cluster behind the scenes to make sure that works correctly and is available for data scientists to use as a tool but nowadays because of tools like databricks this is like a this is now a managed service that you pay for and you get access to as your team will get given the keys basically to, mm-hmm. to do all the cluster computing that you would you would want so this has meant that teams are able to get spun up doing this kind of stuff that historically even as little as five years ago was really difficult to to orchestrate but it's now much more it's now much more um accessible and can be and can be spun up a lot more quickly than it, than it previously had. So that's one explanation as to why this is becoming more of a more of a kind of topic of conversation now that we've got the compute and the process to deliver these data science or machine learning assets to the point where we want to put them in our products more widely. Um, it's become it's become much more a commoditized thing that smaller teams can do that. But the challenge with software is always it's not necessarily making the thing work in the first instance. It's not a case of proving that your approach works. And this, this also applies to just traditional software as well, not, not necessarily data science focused stuff. But it's the what happens when you put that out into the production system and how that piece of software exists from a continuous development process. You know, there, there's a whole area where software developers will talk in depth called continuous integration. Basically, uh, practices for making sure that if there's multiple developers working on the same project, that those contributions can live with each other from like a just, a, just to make sure things don't break perspective, but then also to make sure quality remains high as well. Um, taking like something that's as simple as like a, you know, a change to an API is, is not as a non-trivial thing to orchestrate from the actual software delivery perspective. And it, it makes sense that doing this for data science is really difficult too. So now we've, there's a whole host of uh, startups and companies who are looking at, the, the, the kind of broad term for it is looking at um, they refer to it as machine learning operations. So now we've got the data science value, we've got the stakeholder buy-in, our model works, great. What next? We move it towards production. And it's it's not just a, an overnight thing that we decide, okay, well, to Monday morning, we'll just drag and drop the, <laughs> the mm-hmm. model file to this new directory somewhere, and then we deliver predictions, and that's the end of the story. Like, this ongoing process is like, a, it's, it's a new kind of, in, in many ways, it's, it's, it's a new kind of software that we're having to learn how to, to operationally support and develop upon, and and kind of work with as a as a um, as a component in production systems, and it's almost every day there, there's new people there's people writing new materials about how they are trying to approach the problem, how they think approach Y is better than approach X. Um, so it's a very it's a, it's a huge flurry of activity in this area. So um, to describe it as my experience has been extensive, I've certainly been thinking about this a long time, but like this, this is all very new to almost everybody, mm-hmm. except those who've been delivering kind of high scale machine learning at the scale of a Google or or one of those large companies um, for the past however many years they've been doing that. 
So to be honest, like there's there's two sides of the coin here where it is it's really challenging, but it's also very exciting to think about this in, in any kind of depth. Um, I think the main thing that I try and proceed with forward is at the end of the day, if you're delivering something that's going to be product focused and is is, is working in a production system, um, at the end of the day, it's all software. And there's practices that we have for software that isn't relying on empirical processes to develop like machine learning models, for example, are. Um, and we can we can begin to look at how we do this for conventional software and try and apply it to those to those more empirically defined pieces that, that are so kind of characteristic of the data science development process. And that just saying that that is not easy. Like this stuff is, is really difficult to do. Mm-hmm. It's just another, it's almost like it's not like the kind of addendum to the data science process where you know it's like there's a single step that we then see and then we, you know we put it in production and everything left happily ever after like in my view i think this is where an almost a whole new discipline is going to develop over the next five to ten years um, and it's only now we're starting to see kind of people looking at this in earnest and there's loads of really really interesting and and uh, cool technologies that people are building purpose-built for this kind of stuff from the model orchestration to serving to instrumenting um, like you were mentioning earlier, there was, I think Glenn, you mentioned like five or six different things there from like a, a serving and instrumentation and, and testing perspective. And these things are like, these all make intuitive sense to, for us to talk about from a quality perspective, but the tooling just now doesn't really exist for, for many of them, which is, which is scary, but it's also, it's also really exciting as well. One of the, um, and maybe tell me if this is like an apt one analysis and to whether it's a worthy comparison. Um, so whether it's both accurate and or useful. Um, and so I view um, software development as essentially a deductive intellectual process where effectively um, like A falls from B, B falls from C. And, you know, if you make the incorrect assumptions about, for example, what type of data comes in or something like that, or how people might click or interact with it, um, you will get errors in your software. However, it is it is fundamentally a deductive process where if you can get each uh, each layer in turn working as you expect, the outcome will be precisely as you expect. Um, and that typically when you have errors in these types of software developments, it is because you have essentially a faulty assumption or a misunderstanding about the scope of what you might be asking at any given step. And so that's why I view... Um, I view software development as a deductive process. Um, in contrast, I view data science and machine learning and statistics as, um, well, it's deductive, inductive, and abductive in the research and development phase. And then the moment you pop it out there, it's hugely inductive. So effectively, you have these different modes of thinking. And by inductive, I mean, like you said, yes, I know that it works under these scenarios. Um, and now I'm going to suspect that it works under the rest of them or whatever else I throw at it. And so effectively, part of the challenge here is that um, the scope of error has increased greatly um, and beyond just what you could control in a research setting. Um, because obviously you're deploying these. Um, there's a difference between, for example, when I was a statistician in the Oxford Hospital System, saying, here's the model, here's what I found, here are my results, here's all this extra bit handed off to a lab scientist or clinician, and they used it. Very different from saying like, okay, here's my thing, time to just launch this into space. Yeah. Or alter- alternatively, I'm gonna put this on your space satellite and it's just gonna do its thing, don't worry about it. Um, and so I think those are two different processes and I think it is very helpful for people to make the distinction about why precisely these things are breaking down. Um, I think that, that that is a very useful uh, way of describing the, the contrast between the two components that are now i think the, the thing is what these components are having to now live together i think this is the this is the kind of key point is we've now got these two kinds of components that now live in the same world um and i would actually say as well if we go back to just like the, the traditional software stuff it being de- deductive that makes it seem very i mean when you look at testing a software system at the at the smallest kind of unit of of a like a function or just the, the smallest kind of like logical way of analyzing a piece, a piece of the system. It seems almost trivial to folk who haven't necessarily worked as part of um, larger systems and from a development perspective. Yes, everything's very crisp from like an inferential perspective. We have to, um, you know, if you put input 
A in, you're always going to get input uh, output B. So in in that sense, it's very very deductive. But the the challenge is when is when the kind of combinatorical like explosion of stuff happens when you begin mm-hmm. putting these bits together, and you get multiple players who are acting on the on the system at any one time with their own requirements from a development perspective. They have their own biases from a a, a development and design perspective. Uh, I mean, in many ways, uh, a software system is kind of like a, a huge living document of mm-hmm. of like uh, prepositions and then outputs. And to then, to, to, 100% is deductive, but it becomes, I wouldn't say quite chaotic, but it becomes really difficult to keep a track of what's happening when those deductions are being altered and tested in different ways, hundreds of thousands of times, um, depending on obviously the complexity of the software that you're developing, um, which is why testing becomes so important for even just conventional software. It's, it's something that gives us, it makes our assumptions about the component parts and the, and the system as a whole. Um, it makes those clear and they're tested rigorously as part of a, a continual cycle that ensures that we don't introduce problems when we make a change, um, which 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 makes a, for anyone who's from the software background, this stuff will all be very familiar. Like, the, like the, the, there's debate about how central testing should be to software practice, because obviously it has some effect on the velocity that you're able to write code at if you're having to write tests at the same time. And there's a lot of cargo cult stuff where people say, this is the way to do testing, or this is the way to not do testing, or we don't need tests at all, we'll just do it. But, Broadly, I think people would agree, <clears throat> and from software backgrounds, that testing is at least useful in a wide variety of cases. Um, but the, but the, the very interesting thing to me is that if you take that purely deductive set of components that are complicated in the way they're intertwined and codependent, and then you are testing those to make sure that things are okay from like a, you know, like a base case perspective, and then we're adding this inductively designed and derived component into the mix there, that just adds so much more complexity to the area which is which 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 again is, is scary but it's also it's, it's, it's very interesting from like a, a kind of challenging uh, technical perspective to try and see how we make these two components play nice together because often um when we take like our, our predictive model say uh, you know that that can be deployed as like uh, okay a user comes along and they ask the model in some i don't know some format for a prediction about their input and we get the input back I mean that that's fairly ring fenced and independent from, let's say, the API components that, that serve the the infrastructure around about that that artifact. But increasingly, what's happening is the inductively designed data science and machine learning components are becoming parts of the actual the pipelines of of, of software more broadly. Mm-hmm. And when your output from like a machine learning model is an input to another potentially very complicated piece of software, then goes away based on the output to 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 kind of like come to some other conclusion to provide some other action to another software system and you scale that up across i mean nowadays when you look at software systems at the top level of an architecture if you look at things like microservice architectures these are very complicated uh, systems at, at, the, at the highest level and um, the, the the potential for uncertainty to be int- to be introduced to these systems is, is enormous um, and that's and that's just um the integration part of that, like that, you know, that, that's not even thinking about all the stuff we've just talked about for the last hour from the perspective of the uncertainty behind developing the component from a data science perspective in the first place. So mm-hmm. there's a real kind of um, coming together of these two cultures. I think um, that, that there's going to be there's a lot of work to try and to make this these two things play nice because truly, I mean, the, it's really exciting like, what what we can potentially do and what we're doing already with data science and, and production. I mean, there's so many products that. I mean, to somebody to somebody who's not necessarily data literate, some some of that stuff seems like magic. You know, the idea that you can have something as simple as like a takeaway menu for a local, like or like a you know an Indian takeaway that wasn't necessarily like uh, on your radar before recommended to you based on like your preferences of food orders over the last six months. Like that seems to somebody who doesn't understand software and data, that seems like a it's unthinkable that would happen. Something as benign as that would happen ten years mm-hmm. ago. So the outputs of this, I mean, obviously as before we even get into the, the topics of like the areas that you've obviously been working in from from medical perspective, some of the stuff that we can do with this is is kind of a huge impact and is already having a huge impact on the world um, kind, of, uh, kind of writ large. But it's just, it's making sure that we, we do it the right way and, and we don't introduce all sorts of crazy uncertainties into are already pretty difficult, difficult to track software systems more broadly. Yeah, so um, maybe just uh, to summarize, uh, this last bit. So, um, obviously we've described us uh, the software development 
who describes software development as a deductive process. Um, yeah. However, that does not mean that it's straightforward or yeah, unchallenging yeah, think, or simple. That, yeah, because it's like it's uh, essentially you can have a you can have a large number of simple uh, mechanisms, and when you put them all together with all their own assumptions, then immediately can become an extremely complex problem. Mm -hmm. Um, so sort of like, um, you know, you, you can have a system and depending on what your, uh, initialization points are and things like that, you can immediately have something that spins off into something very strange. Um, yes, sir. yeah. And also some of the challenges of that, when you have the, bring multiple deductive systems together, if there is a conflict or a contradiction between any one of those components that, that might only arise in an extremely rare case. One that you might not, for example, think about with all the other work that you have to do and things like that. So it's not to call these systems uncomplex. They are highly complex. They're comp highly complex in a certain way. Yeah. And perhaps they're so highly complex in a specific way that the nature of that system is now effectively on some level somewhat in, of an inductive system, you know, and things like that. So yeah, there's a lot there. It's sort of like, um, you know, those little things where you drop a ball and hits one peg and then the next peg, and the next peg. Each of those individually is like a small piece. And it's a very straightforward, simple process. But when you put them together, you can imagine the variety that that can be created and um, enumerating those across multiple dimensions, across the variety variety of each of those dimensions, is quite difficult. Well, one interesting point, actually, I've never I've never looked into this, but I may I may have a look at this this evening after this call. But um, whether anyone studied software as a complex system from mm -hmm. like the formal yeah. definition of complex systems, because it seems to me, as a layman in that aspect of of of, of a complex science or complexity science, that it seems like that would be the case. And and the and the point we're getting to is that by adding these new components into it, the complexity is, is even, is even greater potentially as well. Yeah, no, I think that would be an interesting, and actually maybe this, maybe that's, uh, that's a good place to stop for today. Um, because basically, you know, you have been working on how to deal with these systems and, um, you know, I was, uh, I've been hoping to have a few conversations with you because obviously there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe, um, for a future conversation, what we should cover is, one, which answers the question, is this available as a complex system? And two, regardless of that answer, what are the different types of testing things that we can do to start trying to uh, come to grips with these types of systems? So, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of it with like the regression testing, the unit testing. And maybe once people have some time to digest this conversation and come back and talk about these other ways, um, and we'll do some recap and things like that. But yeah, uh, does that does that seem like a good place yeah. to stop for, uh, for sounds, the day? Yeah, that sounds great. Cool. Yeah, so I, I really look forward to our our, our next conversation um, and the conversation after that because obviously there's a lot to uncover. So, Jason, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Glenn. Cheers. Hey guys, it's Glenn. Thanks for your time today. I hope you liked today's episode. If you did, please consider smashing that like button. It's the single simplest, fastest way to make sure that YouTube shows this video to more people. If you really wanna go crazy, consider subscribing or going to our website and joining the mail list. If you wanna go totally crazy beyond that, forward this to a friend or colleague who you think might enjoy this too. We're a small channel and every bit helps. Our next episode will be coming out next week. So in the meantime, feel free to look around the channel and see other videos that might be of interest. As a quick disclaimer, the views expressed in the show do not represent anything other than the people saying those words, views, etc. like that. It doesn't mean anything about their employers or their employers' views or some thing about their employers or their neighbor's cat or anyone else not saying the words. And in fact, given that people tend to change their views when they're thoughtful enough, it might not even represent the views of the speaker by the time you're hearing the episode. So definitely come back and see if they've changed their views at a later date. They also don't represent the views of our sponsors. Thank you to our sponsors. You can check them out on our website.